Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. Hello, welcome to the first episode of the Ambition Theory Podcast, which is formerly the Diversity at Work Podcast. Moving forward, we are going to be focusing on strategies and thought leadership around creating a workplace where everybody can thrive. We're not going to shy away from the difficult questions, but we have a new brand to reflect the branding of my company. It used to be Andrea Jansen Professional Coaching, and it has now become Ambition Theory. I'm so excited about today's interview with Sylvia Paris Drummond. I am really fortunate to have people like her in my life because we had an open conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement. Because to be honest, I was struggling with what I was going to say about it. And the best thing that I could think of doing was asking more questions. So I invited Sylvia on to have an honest conversation with me to share stories and help us really just learn, listen about the Black community so that we can figure out what our part is going to be. Hi, Sylvia. Thank you so much for coming back again on the Ambition Theory Podcast. For people that don't know you, you are Sylvia Paris Drummond. Can you tell people what you do. Hi, Andrea. Thanks. Lovely. Great to be back. Uh, So I'm with the Delmore Buddy Day Learning Institute, um, and I'm the CEO there. And do you want me to say a bit more about the Institute? Yeah, because people that listen to my podcast, they're all over the US and Canada. So they're probably not familiar with things in Nova Scotia. Okay. All right. So just so folks know, we, you know, we're on the, we have a website, so we're really national and international. You can find us, but the uh, Institute focuses on Afrocentric uh, research, Afrocentric uh, resources uh, and engagement and programming with African Nova Scotian communities and learners all about kind of making the space for them to be the best that they can be into helping policy folks do the work that they can be so the barriers for that success are taken away. I love that. And I think that was the reason when I first met you, why I wanted to have you on the podcast the first time is because you look below the surface, you look at the evidence, and then you try to change the system. You look bigger picture. It's not short term. It's really going below the surface, figuring out what's going on and using that evidence to make change make lives better. And that's why I wanted to talk to you before. And it was such a great interview. And I learned a lot. And I remember you gave me a book. And Mm -hmm. that book, you gave me two, one for me, and that was the story of Viola Desmond. And I'm going to ask you about that later in the interview. Um, And you gave one that I could give to my son's daycare, so they could really learn and hear these stories. And I wanted to bring you back on the podcast, because 
I was thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and I was feeling a little bit stuck as to what my part was going to be and what I could do. And I watched a bunch of videos. I listened to a lot of podcasts and the message I kept hearing was just listen, listen, that's the best thing you can do. And I'm just so honored that I have people like you in my life that I can talk to and say, I want to ask you some questions and I'm just going to listen. And I really hope that I can share it with my audience and they can listen too. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. You know what? And I think you're really speaking to for what a lot of people are experiencing in the approach that they are taking because we've had the chance to be um, via media interviews and just kind of casual conversations, having, having the space to talk, to share. Um, and as you said, to have folks be able to, to listen. And I, I don't know if people are actually thinking about themselves, but usually there's a reflection piece in that, right? So they're, they're hearing these conversations and talking to families about like, you mentioned the books, so like what kinds of, what books are out there that can help with family discussion around these issues? You know, um, how are people interpreting things like the Black Lives Matter movement is, you know, it's an empowerment space. It's creating deliberate opportunities to talk about things, yet some of the conversations that come back and says all lives matter, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so what's in that discussion? Like, why are you raising that? Like, that's not a given, you know, the reason that we need to have a highlight conversation about Black Lives Matters is because what we're seeing happening in, in society is not reflecting that reality. And we need to do something about that. So tell me the difference between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. Yeah. So the, so it's kind of like saying, uh, well, we need to, we need to hire more diversity or we need to have more diversity. Uh, in the workplace or in boards that we do things, but they have to be qualified. So there's like this thing that is like added onto it that has an assumption. So let's go back and, and think about all lives matters and black lives matters. So the assumption should be that in the all lives matters, everybody shows up, but that's not the reality. So that's why you have to be deliberate in saying that black lives matters because you're responding to an inequity an issue that has shown up in terms of how people are over-policed, how they have less access to um, employment, how there's this structural and policy and systemic barriers. So that's why you're, you're, we're asking folks from our perspective to hear what that phrase means, that Black Lives Matters, because we've got all these things that say, in essence, we don't matter. Okay. And by saying it as an all, it just, it doesn't highlight the issues and the issues are just, they're not a part of that big right. umbrella statement. Right. Because, you know, just think about it. If, 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 if in genuineness, all lives matters, would we be having this discussion? Would we be talking about people being disproportionately incarcerated? Would we be talking about lack of access to food security? Would we be talking about all these systemic things that happen generationally? No, because if we really mattered, those things would not be occurring. We would not have health uh, inequities. 
So you can't say to somebody, all lives matter and say, assume yourself is under there when I've seen all of these representations that, that disprove that point. Okay. Thank you for explaining that, Sylvia. So I want to just take it back to story. So first off, you said you work at the Delmore Buddy Day Learning Institute. Can you tell me the story of Delmore Buddy Day? Who is he? What's he about? What's his story? Mm. So he's a, he would probably describe himself if he was still here with us today as a community activist, uh, someone who has a lot of uh, passion for, for youth in the community, community broadly, someone who puts uh, actions into words. And so he's our namesake because of the important role he played in helping the uh, Institute get established. And he's right? a boxer, right? He's a, he's a boxer, yeah, um, and he would, I, th I think he would, no, he would have to own it because it's his reality about part of his experience, but from talking with his children and his grandchildren, he's like, he would always come out first talking about community leadership and his role in that and making space for community voice. But yeah, he'd certainly use his athletic role uh, as part of um, opening doors for youth, for community, uh, and opening spaces for people to come in and have conversations about what institutions, uh, structures need to do to address systemic issues. And so, so we, yeah, and he's, he's uh, um, started his growing years in New Glasgow. So he's no in Nova Scotia, but, and then uh, had his uh, rearing years in um, North End Halifax where the facility, the uh, institute is located. Okay, so it's really the organization that you work at right now is really focused on Halifax, the city that I live in right now, and coming up with programs, coming up with education for Halifax, Halifax and Nova Scotia, the province that we live in, right? Yeah, right. We're very broadly there. We've recently became more engaged in some national initiatives because of the, uh, because of the notoriety of our research uh, and because of some of the, uh, the uh, youth enhancement programs uh, because we try to it, everything comes from a strengths-based approach so we know we're building on things we're not starting from zero um, and so like we were supposed to have except for COVID right interfering but we were supposed to be co-hosting uh, the uh, Black Canadian National Summit right and that was bringing at that time we had a thousand people registered to come to be in Halifax and to talk about you know different sector issues health um, uh, social services, course education, and then because of COVID, we couldn't we couldn't host that. So that's moved to 2021. Okay, so that a presence like local and national and growing. We want to grow international as well. So, what was the vision that Delmore Buddy Day had for your organization? Um, to to be able to set at government tables in a collaborative way and influence the programming and the policy also to be able to provide resources for the public school system, for the community broadly, for policymakers, um, and to be a place where the community could come and feel ownership and pride. Okay, so access. I, the first thing you said was access, seat at the table. And I love that. Is mm -hmm. that, would you say the most important thing that needs to happen? Uh, so I would add into that uh, a genuine, influential seat at the table but yes uh that's really important because then we can help folks when they're starting into things to get them as right as possible in terms of a 
responding to community needs and community issues. So in having a voice and being structurally in leadership positions is, is very important. It's key. Okay. okay. At leadership in any type of organization, at government, organization. in any organization. Okay. I love right. that. Uh, thank you. So I want to just talk about, I want to hear more stories. So I know um, I personally loved the Viola Desmond book that you gave me. And it's interesting because I, I embarrassingly wasn't super familiar with her story. And I don't remember, I didn't grow up in Nova Scotia. I don't remember learning about her in school. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would love it if you could just share that story and tell me that story today. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. And, you know, in that sad truth about so many people not having access to her story in those in our school years uh, is something that our institute is trying to respond to. Viola Desmond, a Black businesswoman, uh, she's a social justice, known now for her social justice activism. She, her experience happened in New Glasgow. Uh, her, so that's uh, a small town in Nova Scotia, right? Just right. so that people okay. not yes. here yes. know, it's a very yes. small rural town in Nova Scotia. Yes, right. Thank you. I mean, if you're, you're thinking about kind of uh, uh, traveling east kind of thing, I guess it's what, about an hour's drive from Halifax or something, an hour mm-hmm. and a half traveling that way. Um, yeah, so she was uh, on a business trip. She actually had been in Cape Breton. Uh, another part of Nova Scotia, and then was coming back back to Halifax, had car trouble, and stopped in New Glasgow. Uh, and to pass the time for the amount of time it's going to take for her to have that her vehicle fixed, she went to the local theater, the Roseland Theater, to watch a movie. And uh, her treatment there was uh, was what uh, has led to a social justice move. Her response to her treatment there, I guess I should say she uh, bought a ticket and sat down in an area that colloquially, so it wasn't like kind of formally on the books, uh, was, was a segregated area for whites only. Uh, so she sat down there and paid her, paid the amount she needed to pay for the ticket to do so, and uh, was forcibly removed when she had, was asked to move and said, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I bought my ticket, I'm staying here, I want to see the movie. And so she was forcibly removed, spent a night in jail, um, and with the support of her husband, her family, uh, and the community, she fought uh, the um, she fought that injustice and ended up actually being charged for um, a violation that related to uh, tax fraud, a one cent tax. So that's kind of how they got around this whole thing. And what happened? And that tax was- fraud, right? I read this story. It was because. They- the tax so the i think it was like to sit on the bottom versus sit in the balcony uh it was a different price and that resulted in a one cent cent, difference in tax tax to the government so instead of just it was a bigger like it was a bigger crime because Mm -hmm. it was the tax evasion versus just sitting in the wrong spot right right Right. and 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 they that had to be the you know if you're going to bring something against your legitimately it had to be that because i said it there wasn't on the books like formally but the segregation that was happening there right so that's what they went on oh so there was no no sign that said there wasn't like sign that said this ticket is this price in this tax this ticket is this price plus like it just people just knew and it was just this underlying thing and yeah so in terms of where you where you yeah where you set you had the there was a price 
But then this whole thing about not being able, because she tried to pay whatever they needed to pay and they wouldn't let her. Because if she had been able to do that, then they, they were basically uh, acknowledging that she had the right to set in the quote unquote white section, right? And so that was, so then what went forward with that after was her story about the fight for that justice. And then in 2010, uh, with the Lieutenant Governor of the Lieutenant Governor of the day, May Ann Francis, as part of leading that charge, she was, uh, she received a free, free pardon, right? Which the way that it structurally was said, the crime actually didn't happen. So it wasn't just like that she was, uh, she was like uh, given compensation or in terms of the the crime, it was like the crime did not happen at all because it really didn't happen. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that story is is told, uh, it's the book that we were referencing, the ABCs of Viola Zesman, is in the grade three classrooms in the public schools in Nova Scotia. And so it's used to help uh, children in grade three uh, improve on their reading. So while they're improving on the reading, they're learning this amazing story. And I don't know if when we were talking, if we had the alphabet, the Viola Desmond mm -hmm. developed at that time. Yeah. yeah. So we're, that's been circulating around as well. We don't have the big book version of that that's been mentioned, um, but we do have the, that resource available for uh, French second language and our council scholar, our school board here, the French school board that's here. Mm -hmm. And so for everybody, everybody else, else wants it. but also Viola Desmond is on our money now. So yes. I thought that was something I think that was for me when I, I was like, why do I, why am I, why is this story not top of mind? Like, it's so important that we put it on our money, mm -hmm. but it wasn't top of mind in my life. I was like, why? Yeah. You know, in, in, so in part of our conversation in terms of Black Lives Matters in that piece, to think about the advocacy. So the advocacy that was behind the scenes to get her acknowledged on the $10 bill. And as well as folks, folks who have seen the $10 bill will also notice that there's, there's uh, the story connection in terms of Godigan Street, where her business was located. Actually, she had a couple of businesses, one with her husband as well, that she had co-run for a while. So she was like, if you think back to that time, 19, in 1946, right? You think back, like there she was, uh, this really well accomplished uh, black African Nova Scotian woman had a business, you know, she had, uh, she was international connections as well because she had a connection with New York where she used to do some work. And yet, so with all that kind of, um, recognition or all that ability, and you're still facing anti-black systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, you just gotta, for these folks that in that time and, and what people are experiencing now, like you just have to think about what kind of strength does it take to keep going each day, knowing that you can accomplish, you can be achieved in, in what, in general ways that people see as success. And yet if, if because of systems and sometimes because of individual acts, but usually they're empowered by systems, by structures, by policy, you can be treated less than in a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the, like the thing, it's not, things haven't changed that much since 1946. And I know as Canadians, we like to say, 
we always like to put ourselves on a pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. As Canadians and say, we're better. And we don't really talk about racism happening in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So can you share with me a little bit, or maybe if you have a story you could tell of how it shows up today, specifically in the workplace? Yeah, I think, you know, and so I made the comment as well that it is uh, very unfortunate that there's just such a cycle of this stuff, right? And that is so ingrained. But in terms of the workplace, where it's still showing up is denial of access to leadership roles, right? Um, and, uh, and how we kind of uh, continue to need proof about it existing, right? So, uh, you know, I've heard experiences for folks talking about in their, in their workplace where they're telling the story, uh, you know, about what happened to them, right? That someone else needs to kind of jump into that story and say, well, you know, that happened to me too, so you're probably not seeing that way. So, the, you know, the stories about in terms of folks um, being followed in the store, you know, that type of thing. But if we, if we look at the most a fairly recent example here locally, for us um, in the media, where we had the uh, the young boy who was uh, harassed at the in Bedford, um, like mm -hmm. in our local area. Can you the tell Mall the whole story? Because most people listening to the podcast would not be reading Nova Scotia News. So okay. tell the whole story. Tell the whole story. So there, yeah. So there were there was a uh, two young folks in the so in the beginning of this story, two young folks, uh, black, were hanging out in the strip mall area, Bedford Mall um, location. And they were asked to move, to go outside, but the other white kids that were in the area were not. And so when they raised that question, they were threatened in the sense by the police about like uh, arrest, basically, right? For, for not following. So anyway, they, they followed that, um, they followed the, the instructions and left the place and they were still asked to be continually moving on and moving on, like they did not, and there was no race issue. There had not been a noise complaint. There was anything like that. It was just their physical location there. Uh, and recently, um, in an article, one of the young folks, uh, he was talking, he was telling his story. I'm struggling now to, and to try to remember his name that was in the paper. But he was telling the story about it. But the very tragic thing in that story is he talked about his experience as a student in school and how he was harassed and bullied for because of his color, right? Because of, of, of racism, that he was harassed and bullied all that time. So we have got in- I'm just gonna interrupt for a sec. So how old is this person? 15. 15, so just the things that you said, right? So at this point, it was, it sounds like it was traumatic. Mm -hmm. And he's 15 year old, years old. And before that, he said, this isn't the first time. Like this right. is something that's been a part of my life for since, a while. since yeah since i think he i think he said since his elementary days in school i was only just getting into senior high now with that age and right? then i that think about people entering the workforce when they're mm -hmm. 22 or, or however old what does that look like and what's that experience been so it's like it's things like for me like i would remember examples from some of my workplace where you would be uh in a meeting right having a conversation make a statement, like it's like you never said anything. And then in most cases, it would be a male, a white male would say the same thing and it's validated, right? 
or we're in and we're talking about um, uh, our diversity policy, our equity policy, and our commitment to do the work again in these workplaces. And then you would be out, I don't know how many times I've experienced these same folks in meetings and you go out in the hallway and no one speaks to you, right? Or there's not like even a, a courtesy in terms of kind of hello. And then the other thing that is really common in workplaces, and I heard a, a lot addressed now, but I'll go back to your point about listening, is asking the, the black folk, the African Nova Scotian, African Canadian folks who are in your workplaces to give you some solutions to the issues without ever having as a system at least doing some work yourself and then coming and saying, so what might we do? Is this workable, right? So rather than like on those, on the, the one or two folks that are generally in workplaces, overburdening them with finding the answers and the, and the solutions. Okay, and so making, yeah. But it, it, you know, it's, it's encouraging that in this round of conversations, right, which, which are, have started, as we all know, because of the tragic loss of Mr. Floyd. Like, but they were having these conversations now and people are starting to say, what should I read as you're raising for folks here? What can I read? What can I think about? And then coming and having the conversation in an ally way has compared to like, fix it for me kind of conversation that, is, that has been our history of, of trying to address these issues. So what are some things that, just somebody working at a big company that wants to learn more, that wants to listen, where do they even start? There's so much around now, like there's the, uh, get some, get some recommendations for books and read those books, right? Read the books about white privilege, read the books about white supremacy, uh, anti-black racism, and even minimally be, get yourself comfortable with being uncomfortable with those phrases, because those are the significant things that we need to talk about and have an understanding about how they keep things going in place, right? And how the things that are um, least comfortable for us can be the times that we're gonna grow, right? And so when we think about like for white privilege, well, what might, might that show up like, right? So that if, there's, if things are set in a structured way so that they're more comfortable for folks to have their space at the head of the table, to be the ones that have the conversations, to be, to be uh, not doing any kind of uh, reflection or self-analysis about like, you know, am I able to be in this position because of colonialism, colonialism because of societal ways, right? And if I am, how am I making space for others to be here? Right, so really kind of accountability on an action that comes from an acknowledgement about, like I said, the white privilege piece and, and what that could open doors for other people. So is that the first step, just recognizing the privilege that you have? Yeah, earned or like people like to talk about it. Well, I didn't do anything to, to, to do this. I was just born, you know, whatever. So earned or unearned, so that example is unearned, still you're there. And you know that you have, you need to, you need to know, you need to recognize that, that what that has done for you in terms of position. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. So is, is that something that people should be thinking about? And it, 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 and it doesn't necessarily, like the higher you are in terms of position, the more weight is on you for that, for sure. 
but uh, everybody has a chance to do that, right? To, to, to when you hear some, a joke that is not appropriate, right? When you read something and people stereotype it to, every, to the whole group, are you brave enough? Do you feel safe enough maybe too in terms of structure to challenge that? As minimally as saying, that's not my experience. Right? Even that is like, whether you want to kind of go further and say, I don't know, whatever in terms of a more direct challenge, but just even noting that's not my experience or does that seem reasonable? You know, asking some questions that cause a critical analysis. Okay, so it's like about that analysis. It's like questioning. It's about not, it's not maybe I, I what I'm understanding from you, it's not about fixing it right away because I don't know if people know how to fix it, but mm. it's more about asking questions, challenging assumptions, getting uncomfortable. And by doing all of those things, then maybe we'll find a way to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, because you've got to be, you've got to be asking questions. You've got to be curious about it, right? You've got to like, like wonder to yourself like what might be my role in this right or maybe i'm not i'm not the boss whatever right but might be my role in this and and then think about because there's been so much now race in terms of questions and people having uh participating in like in the rallies and this things like that around the kind of the whole allyship thing but you you know what have we done that's a deliberate kind of education piece for ourselves that, like I said, that does challenge like uh, what's been a status quo, the status quo of, of, you know, this one or two people on the position. Um, think about it like when you, you know, African Heritage Month, for example, or Black History Month as it's called across the country, like, like who does that? Who's expected to do the activities and the initiatives for that? Right, like my experience, it would be the one black person or the couple of black people that are there, right? So, and even like bigger than that, if that's the only time we do some, any level of kind of engagement, well, that's another issue. But there's things like that that are like structural stuff that you can go, well, why would that be? And then as you step into being a collaborator and ally with that, the right balance of not trying to speak on behalf of someone else or on behalf of another community or take their take their voice but certainly offer to be part of the work that needs to be done so i'm really curious about how people can actually go about doing that because what i have seen on social media what well, we've seen this we've seen people go on social media want to have use their platform for good and getting lots of backlash lots of judgment people saying the wrong thing because um, they don't even know what to say and then it causing lots of tension mm -hmm. and backlash. So how do people even navigate that? Because you said you don't want to have like the one black person be responsible for Black History Month. We all need to share it. But then it's like, but you don't want to speak on behalf of them. How do you balance? Like how does someone who's like, I want to help. I don't want to offend someone. How do they move forward and navigate that? Mm. I it, well, I guess it starts with like how people start the conversation. So have you like offered up yourself as a support for someone or have you said, I'm going to go do it for you because I know what to do. Like, have you asked the questions like what, you know, what should be done? Like particularly if you're thinking about 
uh, in your collaborative workspace together or some in that regard, you know, and you're like, have you said to, have you said, we think we need to do this. This is something that's showing up as an issue. Here's what we're going to do. What do you think? So it's one thing to ask advice, right? Uh, and then move forward in that way. And then as opposed to like, just like, I think, you know, running off on behalf of someone and making choices. So it's still about this uh, relational, this conversation, this kind of self-reflection. It's a reading and being well-informed. And then like just thinking about, so kind of not common sense, but kind of what makes sense in terms of both how you kind of want to do something or you want to um, do something that's in, impactful, whatever, right? And in those times where people are gonna step out and take some action, then first they need to like, instead of done their pre-homework, right? Done, done, their, done their information finding, asking about what, make, what makes sense uh, before they kind of jump out and do something. Okay. So the best first step for someone is to really ask, it goes back to the learning, the asking the questions, the starting with curiosity. And if you do that, that is, it sounds like that's the best way to figure this out. Cause I don't think we have a solution yet. No. And I, I think the other thing is, is to think from the perspective of this is, we're having this conversation. And we've had conversations before, right? So there's a, a, a general trusting that needs to happen again. People have had, well, have had different experiences. Like, you can just imagine if you've opened yourself up to someone and said, yeah, you know, we're gonna kind of work together. And then you learn, like what happens to you. So in terms of, uh, say myself, like, in, if I'm, you know, uh, I say to, so I say to someone, Okay, yeah, let's let's try to do this, whatever it is, as activities initiative together. So, so one thing is, I'm thinking, yeah, but you only come to me during Black History Month or African Heritage Month. We never talk about anything before. Okay, but okay, I'll try. We'll we'll do some stuff. We'll do some work together. Then you disappear after that. You don't have any time to take to kind of take up the issues. You you don't necessarily uh, prove that you. It doesn't necessarily demonstrate that you show up when I'm not there, still speaking on, still speaking in on behalf of addressing the issues, whatever, right? That's the systemic issues that exist. So there's there's this part about like there should be an expectation that you also need to kind of rebuild or gain trust in these in these things because people are as we've been telling our stories, they're like their experiences over and over again in all kinds of different workplaces and situations. So there should be some kind of comfort level with saying, okay, well, we, we need to kind of do more of our work here as society because we do need to build trust as well, right? So, and, there, and as you said, like there is, no, there is no easy answer, but if we don't have like kind of courageous conversations, and if we don't kind of do self-analysis and, and challenge, you know, the structures that exist, we're not going to move. That's how we're going to move. Okay. Thank you for that. So these courageous, I love that you said that word courageous because it's courageous for everybody, right? To have those conversations. And then through that courage, you get uncomfortable, you get uncomfortable together. And that's where you learn. And that's where the new ideas and the new ways are going to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and, and just thinking about that people's 
everyday walking experience in, in black body is like a weight of decision making and wondering and thinking about like if I go into I go into a meeting space and uh, everybody stops talking. So you might say, oh, you know, you're just like overreacting, whatever, right? No, I have to do the analysis. Is there something that was going on here for me in my case that has to do with gender or that has to do with race, right? I have to kind of think that through and watch and maneuver and stuff. That's a lot of weight on everybody, right? To be going through uh, on an ongoing basis in the various spaces that you're in. Or as I was telling someone not too long ago, you know, when we were out socializing um, before COVID, when we were out and so we're in like kind of just a local restaurant bar area and having a meal. Um, and then there's a, there's a group of, of uh, uh, like a table of friends, you know, white males, like all were there. And like, and they're, they're talking, they're whatever, and they're, you know, enjoying themselves and having a few more beverages and a few more beverages. But because of my, and because of my experience, right, in my, my life experience, and my husband's life experience, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, please don't let them get, you know, too far gone. And then there's going to be things said, right, like negative things said, racist things said, or whatever that we're gonna have to deal with. We're gonna have to figure out how we have to deal with it. Cause how many times have I been in places where they do it and then people like wanna start like, you know, a whole range of stuff. Now I didn't know any of these individuals, right? To say good people, bad people, whatever. But what I'm saying is in terms of societal way, that, that, that is an experience that we have to watch out for. We would be the ones that would have to pay attention and either get out of that situation or to be prepared to respond to that situation because the weight would be on us. And that's the kind of burden stuff that you bear every day. And for you know, for our experience with children in school, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, there's a there's a, a monitoring about how, how we the volume of our voice, how we move around in hallways and stuff that is different weighted on black people than it is on white people, right? It's so how can we as like a white ally What's the best thing we can do knowing that there's weight on your, like for me, Sylvia, like there's this weight on your shoulders. What could I do to be an ally for you? Well, one is, I guess, is to be able to speak up in the situation, right? To even just to say like in the gathering space there, like in the school situation is like, you know, why would, why are you asking this group to move on? You're not asking us to move on right say that would be an example there but it's more it is it's the um the the allied voice is one that speaks to the issues explicitly and from the from the location of the white privilege right because you because those kinds of things can be said in that way and that's not speaking like somebody else's voice or somebody else's story that's just responding to that situation of the time right mm -hmm. and trying to act to that and i think if it, when when people are able to be in positional structural things, the same type of thing, but to be looking around those tables and say and asking those questions about not just why somebody may not be at that table, but have we thought about how our policies or how what we're going to do is going to impact the community? Okay, and I have another question, and because I have three 
younger, like young children. My oldest child is eight. How can I, because you talked a lot about school. So I'm curious as to what I can do to teach my kids Mm -hmm. to be allies. Yeah. Kids are so powerful in terms of thinking and things of fairness, right? And so to have, I think it's a, to, to have those conversations to that raise up for them fairness, like in what, what, what are you seeing, you know, and always, of course, feeding from what they might bring to you in conversation, but uh, being able to also like kind of take up the question that may come or raise a question in any chance that you get, right? If, if you're watching media stuff together, if you're reading stories, like if you make choices of stories that privilege, you know, um, uh, diversity in terms of who are the lead roles and, and who are, I mean, there's, um, there's some things I think that we can learn from here in terms of approaches that we would have seen in the women's movement as well, right? You need to be very deliberate and intentional about highlighting those spaces. Okay, so for kids, just, I think framing it around fairness, I really like that one because kids get that and it's very simple. So I'm going to take that away and use that with my kids. And now, Sylvia, I like to finish my podcast with an action that everybody can take within 24 hours. I like to make it so simple because I know like listening to this podcast, learning, hearing you tell these stories is great, but actually applying them is what's going to make a difference. So what's something simple that people can do within the next 24 hours? I would say be intentional in your observing or your watching. And and what I would hope would come from that is, so as you watch any media, as you watch interactions, like just in the public sphere where you're at, as you read uh, any journalists or stories, whatever, be intentional in observing. So how are black folks situated you know are they are they uh i think that's great stereotype way you know all that time yeah i think it's that simple just observe Mm -hmm. your from yourself from your place Mm -hmm. wherever Mm -hmm. you're at for 24 hours yep i love that thank you watch watch deeply as they say (laughs) yeah thank you so much sylvia i learned a lot from this and thank you for spending the time with me doing this interview today Yeah, no, it's great. You always raise up the good questions, so appreciate it. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about Ambitious Every Day. It is all of the exercises that I take my coaching clients through in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals. And here's the great news. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get 11 pages of the journal for free as a PDF right to your inbox. So head on over to ambitiontheory.ca and sign up. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much. 